our role with the tech embassy is to build a trusted relationship with the sector, with the tech sector. And I think many of the social media companies, you know, they sort of unwillingly over the past couple of years became these foreign political actors. Many of them would say, look, we build products and services. They are primarily here for entertainment, for connection, for looking at cat videos online. And that is to a large extent true, but they've also become foreign political actors. And it's taken some time, to be honest, I think for the full industry suite to sort of see that. Now we're here. And I think the swift action that we've seen in Ukraine from some of the largest platforms in countering disinformation, in addressing these malign influence operations, working closely with governments, working very closely with the Ukrainian government, working with civil society has really made a huge push. Welcome to another episode of the Defenders Advantage podcast. I'm your host, Luke McNamara. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by the Danish tech ambassador, Anne-Marie Engtof Larsen, for what I am sure will be a fascinating window into diplomacy in cyberspace. Ambassador Larsen, great to have you here today. Thank you so much, Luke. It's a great pleasure to be here. I think the logical place for us to start for this discussion is, you know, what is the role of the tech ambassador? This is something we're seeing more and more from various countries, roles kind of similar to this or similar titles. But Denmark has been pretty forward leaning on this from, from the beginning. So what is exactly your role and how does it function within Danish foreign policy? First of all, Denmark was actually the first country to appoint a tech ambassador back in 2017. And I think the easiest way to say this is that for me, tech diplomacy is really a new interpretation of traditional diplomacy. For centuries, countries have been sending out diplomats to other countries that held a big impact over our society, our way of life, our economy. That's why Denmark has been sending diplomats and ambassadors to Spain, to England, to the U.S. for a long time. We have had ambassadors and diplomats where big transformation was taking place, where big changes that was shaping our geopolitical reality, the foreign political landscape that we're navigating, and down to sort of what impacts our societies. Today, it's not only large countries or international organizations that are shaping how a country like Denmark is doing. This is really being shaped by large tech companies. So to that end, the Danish government thought, then why don't we try to use those traditional diplomatic capabilities and toolbox and try to apply it on this new massive tech sector that has, you know, immense impact over almost every aspect of Danish lives, from how our medium-sized businesses are thriving to the question of our national security, down to the question of our democracy, our society, even how our government is run, which is almost like fully digital now. So to that end, it is really sort of a, a new interpretation, I want to say, of classic diplomacy. We see how countries are computing for new technology. Technology has really sort of been the chessboard of which big power politics are being played out. So if you do not engage with these, I think, both at a technical, but also at a very political, strategic level, you potentially miss out in what is sort of the modern world that we're navigating. And there's so many different areas of technology that, you know, come under different ways that certain countries are approaching kind of similar roles. Australia is, has something similar. Here in the United States, we recently stood up a bureau around cyberspace and, and digital policy. Um, we've had people in various or similar roles for a while, but that's kind of a, a, a newer function for us. What are some of the ways that you've seen the function and the remit of, of your portfolio and the different issues around 
cyberspace evolve kind of with this particular role in, in Denmark? I think most importantly is that tech and cyber diplomacy has sort of gone from a niche, something that was a bit of the fringe. We were an office that not everyone necessarily saw what is the sort of, how does this tie into traditional geopolitical questions, traditional security policy, foreign policy? That's no longer the case. Technology has really become front and center, whether we're talking European policies, whether we're talking uh, Antarctica and Arctic, whether we're talking transatlantic relations, whether we're talking geopolitical tensions at sort of a global scale, uh, whether we're talking development policies, the digital agenda has really transformed how so much of the work that we're doing as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has changed. And to that end, I think that's what's happening and why we're seeing more and more countries appoint tech and cyber ambassadors exactly to that reason, saying there is here a a huge sort of transformation taking place. It has incredible influence um, on all aspects of our lives and all of the sort of geopolitical challenges that we're trying to maneuver and navigate. And it is changing the landscape from which we operate. We have to be not only observers, but we have to be active in that. We have to understand what those changes are, how to influence them. And that's why my role is to fundamentally represent the Danish government and the Danish people towards the tech industry and vice versa. But we go beyond the sort of traditional what you could call lobbyist regulator relationship. That's not what I'm up here to do. My point is exactly to do diplomatic relations, long-term sustainable conversations, not about small pieces of legislation, but where do we fundamentally want to take our society? How do we navigate the geopolitical tensions around technology? What are the fundamental values from a Danish perspective that we think are important to build into not just one digital platform, but to the really it's sort of the full digital ecosystem and the infrastructure that is the backdrop of which our lives, our economies are lived from. And so it really goes to sort of, you know, I think diplomacy, which is about understanding each other, try to have deeper conversations, also critical conversations, because we do not see eye to eye on all things. I can also tell you governments, they speak a different language than most tech companies. We have a whole different time horizon. We have a very different dynamic of how we make decisions and take decisions, but trying to translate between a, what used to be a move fast, break things culture out here, and now maybe a little bit more of a move fast, don't break so many things culture, translating and insisting that mutual understanding and respect and engagement and collaboration with private sector is absolutely key if we are to uphold the rule of law in a digital age, if we are to ensure that the respect for international norms are continued, if we are to ensure that some of the democratic principles and values that we hold dear are fundamental to the system architecture of a digital world. I had a chance to read through the strategy for Denmark's tech diplomacy for 2021 to 2023, a document I believe you, you put out last year. And um, it was interesting, you know, I was especially drawn to the security section. Of course, we're a cybersecurity company. And in that you go through talking about cybersecurity challenges, challenges around disinformation. When it comes to that part of kind of what you're looking at and tech diplomacy, what are some of the priorities right now for the Danish government around those issues, things that are top of mind, you know, for representing Danish citizens, but also in how you're engaging with uh, governments and, and tech companies right now? Absolutely. Well, let's start with cyber. 
it's really key to us and a, and a core part of our uh, strategy is to strengthen resilience and raise the cost of cyber attacks. And we've been talking, I think, in the community for this for a long time. Now the political attention is really, so how do we do that? How do we increase in the scale and the scope of that work? To us, the attribution is a really important part of that work because that is about calling out actors who violate international rules and norms that we've been spending a lot of time in New York fighting for over the past couple of years. So upholding those fundamental norms that we have committed to is key. For us, attribution has also become, you know, it's hardcore security policy. And in that sense, international coordination is absolutely key. We're a small country. And if we are to make a dent when it comes to the global cybersecurity, our capital works very closely, obviously, with our partners in the European Union, but also partners out of the US. The transatlantic relationship is incredibly important for that. And we're really starting to see how that type of collaboration at the capital level coordination can be incredibly successful. I think the Viasat attribution is one of that. It was also quite unique attribution, as you might know for us. First of all, it was about you know raising awareness about Russia's harmful destabilizing behavior in cyberspace and you know and again this you know, violation of the international rules and norms that they have been part of setting. It was also one because we saw that the spillover effects they were known that they had a huge spillover effect not only on Ukraine but on but on other countries in, in in Europe. And then finally, it was the first time that the EU made a full direct attribution to another state. To me, this really sort of marks a new beginning or a new opportunity for us to use the, what you call the cyber diplomacy toolbox, much more active in trying to call out these threat actors that are becoming you know, ever more complex, it's becoming ever more entwined with what we're seeing and what I want to see the real world and the conflicts that are playing out. To that end, I think one of the key pieces and what I'm really excited about working on is that, yes, states are, I think, stepping up to this question around attributions. We also know that states cannot solve the cyber threat alone, far from. My main task is really to ensure that we have a much stronger cooperation between the private cybersecurity companies, just like Mandiant, who are at the front of understanding, analyzing, seeing firsthand what's happening. You will be the first to discover and to respond to cyber attacks long before we will. Uh, you will often have the privileged access to the global data, the information. Solar Winds was another example of that. And so that cooperation and that trusted relationship between a private sector and states and saying, when it comes to cyber attacks and when it comes to really raising the cost around us, we have so much more that unites and divides us. And it has to be, I think, a truly public-private collaboration. Part of that is also one thing is reacting to, to when attacks happen. The other thing is speaking to the industry about resilience. How do we take that strategic conversation of not only how do we act once an attack is upon us, but but really how do we build resilience in our digital infrastructure? A country like Denmark, it's incredible, you know, everything is digitized from our schools to our hospitals to basically all of government. And the vulnerabilities that increases for that infrastructure, we need to, I think, be much more adamant about the connection and collaboration with private sectors to say, this is a fundamental critical infrastructure. There's no, you know, we, we used to talk about sort of the physical critical infrastructure in the digital. For a country like Denmark, there is no such separation. It is really, truly digital now. So for that, I think the collaboration being out here is, is really key of, our, of, of my mandate. And I think just maybe ending on, on that before, maybe we can go into to disinfo, which is another big piece in our strategy. 
I really want to commend Mandian for your openness and transparency about the threat and the threat actors. Uh, I think if it wasn't for the analysis and intel that, that you give, we would not be where we are today. And, you know, I think honestly, we would not have both the confidence and the, the political will to act in the way. So it's because of companies like Mandiant really moving forward on this. And I think recently you shared a very interesting observation about the three primary stages of cyber operations in the lead up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that type of intel, understanding that there has been a close link between the Russian military operations and diplomatic actions and then the cyber attack side of it. Uh, I think it was sort of some strategic cyber espionage, both on Ukraine, but also EU and NATO member states, uh, the prepositioning of disruptive cyber effects in critical infrastructure, and then the connection between the kinetic operation throughout the invasion and, and cyberspace. And if it wasn't for that openness and the information you let out, we would have a much harder time reacting to it. Well, let's talk a little bit about the disinformation piece, because I think that's another area where increasingly, kind of to your point there about it's important to view some of these operations kind of holistically or, you know, especially as we're seeing right now with Russia's invasion in Ukraine, cyber operations are there in some ways to support the kinetic operations on the ground. They're amplified in some ways by the disinformation. That disinformation is crossing borders. It's not just contained to that conflict. Um, And we're seeing a lot of, as we have from a lot of uh, suspected Russian disinformation campaigns for years, that's aimed at focusing and and trying to drive a wedge between members of the NATO alliance or members of the EU. So as we kind of, you know, see this unfolding, um, how do you view disinformation as kind of maybe a subset or or adjacent to the cybersecurity discussion? And, And what are some of the things that we should be thinking about to try to address that problem kind of, again, across the ecosystem, across the community of of both public and private sector players? Look, I think over the past two to three years, disinformation has really risen to be a much more core national security concern and a geopolitical threat. I think for a long time, we probably saw it as a little bit of a, you know, a fringe part of the internet, uh, a, a few lunatics, you know, we you know, we saw it and we thought it looked weird, but then you know, I think 2016 election here was a huge sort of wake-up call for the role of disinformation. The need for governments to take this much more seriously that the sort of long-term pervasive effects that disinformation could have, we saw that under COVID, completely undermining the trust in our healthcare systems and the trust in governments who were at a very sort of challenging place and trying to get communities to, to actually walk the same pace when it comes to vaccines. What we've learned so far and what I'm sort of, you know, pleased by and and makes me optimistic, even though we see disinformation actors are becoming incredibly sophisticated at at spreading uh, their lies in new ways as as we try to close down their channels. One, the international cooperation and exchanges around this have really sort of been raised in, in, in the last couple of years. Two, it's moved from authorities that set more with the cultural part and, you know, ministries of culture and those who had a little bit more in speech to now be national security concerns. And so also the security communities are discussing this. And then we see how successful, I think both, you know, the US and the UK, uh, they've been, you know, preemptively debunking false information and narratives about Ukraine from Russia by sharing intelligence. So the fact that we're starting to share intelligence about disinformation and how we view it rather than, I think what, what happened four or five years ago was a little bit, you know, sort of keeping it 
closer and trying to deal with it nationally. That is increasing the resilience against disinformation. The global discussions we have now on disinformation, particularly around elections, have been really key, I think, to addressing not only in countries where we speak English, but also in countries with other languages and where some of the content moderation and our focus on disinformation hasn't probably been the same. From a Danish perspective, we actively support the development of ambitious EU policies on this topic and really think that we need better tools to counter the hybrid threats, including influence operations and disinformation. We also need to be better at doing it. There's been a lot of work done around election integrity. That's incredibly important, but a lot happens in the four years between elections and how to make sure that this sort of thriving online environment is kept safe for disinformation because it has... We've seen now it's not only about swaying a few people's opinions, but completely destabilizing influence on the trust in our governments, the trust in institutions, the trust in, I think, you know, basically what we're seeing in Ukraine now is who wins the information war and who wins the narrative about what's what's happening. So that's a lot of the work we're doing. Particularly here, our role with the tech embassy is to build a trusted relationship with the sector, with the tech sector. And I think many of the social media companies, you know, they sort of unwillingly over the past couple of years became these foreign political actors. Many of them would say, look, we build products and services. They are primarily here for entertainment, for connection, for looking at cat videos online. And that is to a large extent true, but they've also become foreign political actors. And it's taken some time, to be honest, I think, for the full industry suite to sort of see that now we're here. And I think the swift action that we've seen in Ukraine from some of the largest platforms in countering disinformation, in addressing these malign influence operations, working closely with governments, working very closely with the Ukrainian government, working with civil society has really made a huge push. I want to return a little bit to kind of actually where we started the, the initial conversation or some of the points you were making about Denmark saw the need to start engaging not just with other countries around this topic, but with corporations. And my question is, and this is one of the things I, you know, when we set up this conversation, I was like most excited to ask you about, because I think it's very interesting to see how it's evolving. And that's the question around as you're seeing more of a focus put on this issue, this this realization that governments and countries need to engage on, on tech issues of the variety that we've talked about here uh, so far. You're seeing a lot of different groups and alliances and networks and relations kind of leverage for that end. We recently saw, for example, South Korea's Intel service brought into NATO CCDCOD. CCDCOE, I always mess that up, that acronym. But I think part of that was a recognition that we need the perspective and capability and insight from across the globe. These are global threats we face. There's a lot of people that have different pieces or apertures into this problem. Some of those are private sector entities. Some of those are governments in different places. And so I guess the question is, how much of can we leverage existing alliances and existing frameworks for capacity building or intelligence sharing? And how much will that also require sort of new relationships, new structures to address some of these challenges in the future? In short, I think we need both. 
some of those existing structures are important because there is a trusted relationship already. There is norms and procedures in place of how to take decisions. There are a, a reckoning of certain issues on the tech agenda that countries, you know, governments, companies that are part of those alliances are, are committed to solve. So I think it's, you know, it's not about sort of um, the baby out with the bathwater, uh, as you say. At the same time, there are some new aspects of how emerging technologies are affecting us geopolitically. We're also living in a, in a world that is, I think right now, if we look at it, it's, it's becoming increasingly bifurcated. We're seeing an, an economic and a technological decoupling that has huge ramifications on the technological landscape and how we maneuver that. We are seeing, you know, for the first time in 10, 15 years, the, the, the amount of democracies are shrinking some of the fundamental values that have, you know, I think we as, as, as Denmark stand very solid on the rule of law, international cooperation, uh, the respect for human rights, some of these are undermined. And that means that there is a, at times an inertia and there is a challenge of agility and responding in, in, in a timely manner in some of these established sort of organizations and the way they work and that internal dynamic that we need to also look at alternatives. So for me, this is really sort of a two-tier approach. It's both sort of pushing through on, you know, whether on cyber norms, we need to have everyone there. It's a big tent approach. We can't just sit half of the world's countries and discuss cyber norms if the other half is not part of that conversation because it's about upholding them internationally. At the same time, you know, there is a fragmentation of, of the open, free, interoperable internet. There are challenges, and I think we would be wrong if we did not address the reality and try to see who are the like-minded countries with whom we share some fundamental values and principles with around upholding an open, free, and interoperable internet, about ensuring that democracy and human rights are respected, uphold, promoted online as well. That the fragility that we have by putting our entire infrastructure online is also supported by an equal new type of resilience. So to that end, there are new alliances that need to be formed. It also goes to many of the companies that are absolutely key and they are the gatekeepers on modern technology. They were not even invented when most of these international organizations came about. The GAFAs or how you want to sort of cut the slides of the large tech companies, they are between what, 15 and, and 30 years old. Even now, being out here in Silicon Valley, there's so many companies coming every single day. And we need to think about a Big Ten approach to how we engage with those who are at the forefront of often, you know, they are the first to see and the first to respond to cyber attacks. They are the ones whose platforms are being used for disinformation. And so if we just use traditional ways for you know, diplomats to sit and talk to other governments about what we ought to do, but don't get those who are the gatekeepers, those who have the platforms part of that conversation in a trusted relationship where we can make decisions swiftly with agility. And rather than always responding afterwards, actually being slightly proactive, we need to also think about new ways of engagement. When you think about some of the challenges with championing, you know, the role of rights and values in cyberspace, the role of democracy in, in cyberspace, what are some of the areas that you think that, you know, you increasingly will see something that becomes a challenge, you know, for the global community going forward? And maybe, you know, speaking to, for example, you mentioned earlier, the rule of law, we think about the problem of ransomware that we've continued to see the last several years, and how many of these actors are operating out of spaces where they're permitted by state entities to engage in some of that behavior. 
So what are some ways you can think about both governments, but also corporations can champion some of those rights and values around rule of law and, and rights and values in cyberspace? I believe that looking, you know, when I discuss this issue with companies here in, in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley in particular, I often talk about the values that were fundamental for these con- for these companies to even exist, which is the rule of law, which is believing that the rule of law in which you're making a new company and, and you believe in the sort of democracy here where it is actually allowed you to take that risk to create a new company. It is the belief in science and innovation that allowed these companies to, to not only be created, but to grow. It is that security of a trusted government. So... We spend a lot of time actually saying that on the values piece, I think there's a lot more that unites us with companies than that divides us, even though at times you will hear, especially between companies and Brussels, you know, disagreements over aspects of new legislation and regulation, which obviously there should be because governments and companies are not the same. But when it comes to upholding democracy, when it comes to upholding the rule of law, we have become so reliant on the Internet on digital infrastructure, on cyberspace, that if we are not aligned on the values behind that with the companies who are, frankly, you know, producing, disseminating, hosting, and, and guiding that infrastructure, we will be, I think, sort of poorly set up for the future. Thinking through technology and the original ideas going back to the, you know, the, the the sort of beginning of the internet back in the 1960s, it was this idea of technology ultimately setting us free, using the internet to create you know better, happier, more meaningful lives, more transparent, more inclusive, more opportunity for the individual. I think some of those fundamental pieces. It was not only about flying cars. It was also about making a more meaningful experience for the individual, about, you know, I think stronger societies with more opportunity and and transparency and participation and, and all of these things. Accountability, huge part about it is around accountability. So that is to say, that's often where our conversation with the tech sector starts. It's actually about, you know, I think uniting around some of these principles. It's equal access to information. Today, it's increasingly about the the safety and well-being of our children and youth. It's the question around private data. All of this is dependent, and to that extent, our our the longevity of our democracy is dependent on cyberspace. So, if we do not find common ground on, on how to charge that water forward, we, we're going to be challenged about it. So, you have this, uh, you know, appeal to to shared values and being able to rely on institutions and organizations and, and frameworks that have existed prior to sort of the emergence of the, the tech economy and world and, and digital economy that we live in today. But it strikes me that one of the, the challenges that's maybe more unique to your role than, say, another diplomat is that you're trying to think about creating and shaping policy in a world that is very rapidly changing. And, you know, whether it's some of the issues we talked about here around cybersecurity, cyber espionage, disinformation, or artificial intelligence, digital currencies, you know, some of these more emergent areas of, of technology, that world is changing so fast. And yet it has implications on our daily lives. It has implications on global and foreign policy. So how do you deal with all that? Well, first of all, you appoint a tech ambassador, and then you try to get her to get up to speed and stay on top of all of these issues. And I think, joke aside, the catch-up game between industry and government has always sort of been there. 
And we talk a lot about what does agile governance look like? Can we do more, you know, future oriented governance? Can we do more outcome based governance? Basically trying to anticipate, you know, challenges and opportunities, incentivize the right type of markets. Um, But I think we got to be fair to say we're still not there. We see new technologies arise and we see the impact and the potential harms and risk, but also the opportunities. And then on the back of that, we regulate. I believe that we can do something to speed that up a little bit and to change that asymmetry. Right now, that asymmetry has also grown too much. I mean, we have allowed a tech sector to be you know, largely unregulated for decades and now coming and say, actually, we want to take some of that leeway and wriggle room away. And, and now you got to fit into these political expectations. And that becomes very hard because most of these companies, they are like some of the biggest companies we have on the planet, they're much bigger than the com- than the largest companies we had in the 1950s and 60s. And so that way of doing regulation just doesn't really hold true anymore. So while democratic processes, they definitely move slower than technological development for a reason, there's a lot more checks and balances. There's a lot more inclusion. They're sort of getting the whole, not only politicians, but public up to speed. There is a way for us to do much more of the work when it comes to, as I said before, values, interests, and rights, and to install some of these principles and say that is more important than speed innovation. We do not want to be putting up a lot of red tape. I certainly not, do not want to be stifling innovation, but I do want to be incentivizing it. And so I think what we can actually do with the tech diplomacy is rather than come and say, this is hardcore legislation, we've got to put that on the table and then you just have to comply with that whether you want to or not. What we try to do is before that happens is saying, what are some of the shared interests and values? What are we expecting that's going to happen? Looking at quantum we have high expectations. The economic opportunities, the scientific discoveries that we're going to have from quantum, that gets me excited. The national security piece person in me gets incredibly scared about that. Look at what, you know, cryptography and what, is it going to undermine our entire sort of national security architecture? Potentially. Could we actually chart out now and say, this is not, we're not going to close down development in quantum. Why would we? There will be a before and after the 10,000 qubit quantum computer. And it's going to be an exciting after, but only if we now start talking about can we incentivize and can we collaborate and make sure that we harness all the amazing opportunities and then the potential risk that might be in it, rather than being unattended consequences that all of a sudden have, you know, a global scale because we did not address them. And I think some of the things that we're seeing now on disinformation, we didn't really think through what happens when 3 billion people were on the same platform where algorithms drive some of the conversation and where you can easily upload things that are false um, and spread it to millions, if not billions of people around the world. If we had thought a little bit about the design and the conversation around how do we harness the amazing opportunities that social media gives us, while at the same time addressing the risk, so we don't have these unintended consequences. My point is being is that we have seen too many clashes recently, I think, between tech companies and governments, governments who are asking for all sorts of accountability and companies saying, sorry, that was unintended consequences. And I want us to be in a place where let's think through what unintended consequences might be when a new piece of technology is developed and used not only by a few, but by millions and billions of people. When new technology is a fundamental infrastructure of our society, when new technology completely disrupts some of our traditional systems, be that national security, innovation, um, 
our markets, financial markets, etc. And that is a collaborative part. And that is what we can do so much better. And to your question earlier around, you know, is this existing alliances or new alliances? It's both. It is in the EU, it's NATO, it's a transatlantic alliance, focusing much more on how to be preemptively thinking through what might be the systemic level consequences and opportunities of technologies when they become much bigger than what we're immediately seeing. So what are some of the the opportunities you're most excited about going forward where you think there's an opportunity to make some some real progress on issues? Uh, And I guess just thinking about this from the, the context of cybersecurity and Ukraine, it seems like one of the outputs of this, you know, catastrophic conflict has been a strengthening of relationships within the the NATO alliance and within the EU and that leading potentially to more intelligence sharing in the future. You know, you, you mentioned earlier a greater willingness of governments to not just individually, but collectively call out malign activity in cyberspace. So are there things like that that you think we can kind of build off of and particular opportunities that you're excited about going forward where some of these lines of effort that you're working along, you think can, we can have real progress made in the next couple of years? Absolutely. I mean, the truth is that the global free cyberspace, the pressure on that will continue. We will have to continuously and I think much more viciously (laughs) defend while promoting uh, access, affordable access for everyone, while persisting a free flow of information. So while it's continued, I mean, we talked about this earlier, the threat actors are becoming more sophisticated. Cyberspace will continue to be an arena for geopolitical competition. The really positive thing is that we allied people between companies, the collaboration with governments, we are stepping up and talking much more about what are the positive sides of the global free internet? How do we push back on the authoritarian pressure? How do we make sure that emerging technologies, um, whether that's quantum or AI that has a relation to cybersecurity, that we develop them with that security piece in mind so we can actually reap the benefits? And so what really makes me optimistic and excited about my work every single day is that cybersecurity has really risen to the top of the international agenda for a long time. I got to say it was the nerds that met in, you know, not as fancy conferences and talked about this. Now it is being recognized as a geopolitical issue, not just a technical one. We see a number of tech and cyber diplomats who, to be honest, they know what they're talking about. They understand this. They are fighting for, you know, using that super that cyber diplomacy toolbox I talked about before. They're actually engaging with the industry around this. I find also there's a willingness for collaboration. It's been a when I started the work on the sort of broader tech agenda back in 2014, 2015, it was either this notion that look, everything is going great, we're getting fine cars, there's no problems, or it was the, you know, very antagonistic relationship between companies and governments. I think we're finding a much more sort of realistic place where the pendulum is neither swung too exciting and optimistic, neither too sort of deeply pessimistic tech is going to ruin the world, but a place of more realism. And it is from that place of realism that we can build trusted relationship and operational collaboration. I think this is moving from sort of lobbyism to a more proactive engagement. There will still be lobbyism. Otherwise, you know, people on both sides would be doing their job poorly. But the long-term strategic shared value conversation, engagement, that is really great. So that's why I'm excited about, you know, initiatives such as the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agencies, the new Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. 
I think that's a really interesting model. Uh, I think it's something we should establish also in, in the EU. That teamwork, and that is a real thing. It's, it's not only, you know, consultations, it's teamwork. People see themselves as colleagues, even though they come from different sides of the aisle. So this whole of society approach to cyber and emerging technologies, that is exciting. And I think it's going to transcend into not just the digital resilience that we need, the technical resilience. I think it's going to be actually much more societal resilience. We now see, and even though, I mean, for some, cyber still feels like a technical issue, but, you know, my parents are starting to think about cybersecurity. It's becoming more of a popular topic that much more people are talking about. Our kids will laugh at their parents if their password is password one, two, three. So the whole question around cybersecurity, it is coming much more broadly into society. It's in education. Our politicians, our governments, our authorities are starting to think much more about this. So... That is what makes me excited, and I think that's why technology ultimately can become affirmative for democracy and can show the way. So as so many countries around the world, as we're, you know, are coming online, as we're closing the digital divide, it is not only about getting that technical access, but it is about gaining numbers and strength in democracy, human rights, some of the more fundamental values of the societies that we hold here that more people hopefully will be able to join in. Well, we covered so much in this, uh, what feels like a very short discussion, but any final thoughts for, for folks? If there is any actor that you know are absolutely detrimental to the work that you're doing, but you don't have a close relationship with them, call them up and get a coffee. I found that working closer, whether it's with other governments, whether it's with tech companies, if I just sit in my office and complain about how they're not doing the things I would love them to do, how they're not collaborating, it has to start by, by us reaching out, building those trusted relationships. So if it's the international organizations, if it's another company, I think this is really an opportunity for us to recognize there's a lot of healthy competition going around. But if we are to address these larger challenges, it is about collaborating and building that trust so that we are able to share information and trust each other when we share it. Well, Ambassador Larson, this has been a fascinating discussion, I think, for you know a lot of our audience that may be more network defenders and we're kind of heads down in our, our work, you know, keeping organizations secure or tracking threat actors, tracking the evolution of TTPs, you know, as that evolves across the space. I think it's useful to have this much more, more broader global and strategic viewpoint. And thank you to the, to the leadership that you and your office have been doing on this issue and on the range of issues we've talked about today. Um, and I think this is a very insightful uh, discussion that will be useful to a lot of people. So thank you for making time. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Mandan. And then to those of you who are sitting with the, all the technical, I think you are really the real heroes of a lot of this. Thank you so much for helping us navigate this and for making your information available. It's been a pleasure, Luke. Looking forward to our next conversation. Take care. You too. Bye.